This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's Sunday, September 16th. I'm John Dickerson, and this is Face the Nation. Florence has been downgraded to a depression, but her fury continues as North Carolina faces catastrophic flooding and record rainfall. We'll have the latest where Florence is headed next and what she's left behind. From our CBS team covering the storm, the head of FEMA, Brock Long, plus two senators whose states have been hit hard. North Carolina's Tom Tillis and South Carolina's Lindsey Graham. Another storm making headlines this week, Hurricane Maria, which left an estimated 3,000 dead in Puerto Rico a year ago. The president disputed that figure, drawing criticism from both parties and the families of the victims. And the clouds darkened over the White House as former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort accepted a plea bargain from special counsel Robert Mueller. Just what impact will that have on the case? We'll have plenty of analysis on all the news coming up on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. Hurricane Florence is now officially a depression, but the rain and threat of flooding will continue over the next few days as Florence creeps through western Virginia, the Ohio Valley, and finally New England. Parts of North Carolina have received record rainfall, in some places over 30 inches, and today the state is expected to get another 6 to 12 inches of rain. More than 580 people have been rescued from the storm in the Carolinas, and at this point the death toll stands at 14. There are more than 735,000 without power, and officials say that number could reach millions in the next couple of days. CBS Evening News anchor Jeff Glore has been leading our coverage since before the storm hit, and he joins us now from his post in Wilmington, North Carolina. Jeff? John, good morning. North Carolina has taken a nearly nonstop punishment from Florence for days now. And as this storm continues its slow, painful slide inland, there are new concerns this morning about potentially catastrophic flooding. A mandatory evacuation order has been issued for everyone living along the Little River and the Cape Fear River, about 60 miles northwest of here. That's about 2,800 households. The Cape Fear is expected to crest at a record 62 feet tomorrow or Tuesday, with water possibly going a mile beyond its banks. North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper is urging residents to take the threat seriously. We face walls of water at our coast, along our rivers. This system is unloading epic amounts of rainfall, in some places measured in feet and not inches. In Jacksonville and New Bern, hundreds who had defied earlier evacuation orders had to be rescued from rising waters yesterday by rescue workers and volunteers. The mayor of Fayetteville, parts of which are in the evacuation zone under the new orders, warned his residents not to make the same mistake. If you are refusing to leave during this mandatory evacuation, 
then you need to do things like notify your legal next of kin because the loss of life is very, very possible. President Trump has issued a disaster declaration for North Carolina, which will make federal money available to those affected by Florence. And late last night, the governor of Virginia issued a warning to those in the southwest portion of the state about possible flooding. John? As you've been saying, it's not just the wind, it's the flooding. Jeff Glor, thanks so much, Jeff. Mark Strassman has ducked out of the rain and is in a hangar at the U.S. Coast Guard Air Station in Elizabeth City where helicopter crews have been hard at work rescuing those trapped by floodwaters. Good morning, John. Uh, that significant inland flooding that uh, Jeff just talked about remains a significant threat and a rescue challenge. And these air, uh, these air rescue crews with the Coast Guard expect another busy day today. They saved 57 people uh, yesterday, hoisting them by cable to safety from cars, roads, and rooftops. In one case, they rescued 13 people, including an elderly woman who leaned on two crutches to wade through waist-deep water. She was raised 40 feet in a rescue basket to the helicopter, an elderly woman. We flew with the Coast Guard yesterday. From the air, you sense the scope of the challenge, how unreachable some flooded neighborhoods seem. In the days ahead, there will be more rain, more flooding, more rescues needed by these helicopters. And in some cases, they will be saving people that rescue boats can't reach. John? Thanks, Mark. We want to go now to the head of FEMA, Brock Long, who is at the agency's headquarters in Washington. Good morning, Administrator Long. Let's start with a statistic I've been thinking about all week. The number of people who die from wind is down around 8 percent. This is from the Associated Press. But storm surge, flooding, that's almost 50 percent. Is yeah. that the big concern with this storm? Well, initially, um, when, it, when a hurricane makes landfall, particularly one that has a major, what we call major category winds, category three, four, or five um, winds, storm surge has the highest potential to create the most amount of damage, but unfortunately, it, it also has the potential to cause the most loss of life. So, um, one of the storms I want to point out is Katrina. 270 people lost their lives in Mississippi because the ocean rose well over 25 feet in some areas, and anybody that didn't evacuate from that uh, doesn't live to to talk about their experience from storm surge. And so is that but concern now? Uh, well, so uh, initially, uh, Florence, it's a different storm than Katrina. Uh, obviously, we didn't have a Cat 5 landfall uh, in, in Florence. But what happens is you saw a lot of damage. You see a lot of people being rescued from storm surge on the coastal islands, the west side of the Pamlico Sound. But now it's turning into a flood event. And the flood event, uh, you know, people fail to heed warnings and get out or... They get into the floodwaters trying to escape their home, and that's where you start to see deaths escalate. So wind, even though hurricanes are categorized by wind, it's the water that really causes the most loss of life. What about the interruption of, uh, of medical care from these kinds of events? We reported over 700,000 uh, or without uh, electricity. What about the interruption of medical care? How dangerous is that? So uh, what we always do is work with our partners over at uh, HHS, and we forward deploy disaster medical assistance teams. Uh, you know, there's, there's hundreds of people out into the field, uh, and not only, you know, to support the medical needs, but also we, we are ready to support any evacuation transportation needs. The interruption of medical care that you were just talking about was responsible, I believe, for 47% of the fatalities in Katrina and is a big part of that number that's been disputed this week about Puerto Rico, the 3,000 number. So the president said that 3,000 number didn't exist, that they didn't die. So how is it true that you're preparing for interruption of medical care in Florence, 
But the president says people who died as a result of interruption of medical care in um, Puerto Rico are not worth counting. Um, well, you know, look, the, these studies are all over the place. The Harvard study was done differently, studies a different period of time versus the George Washington study. Uh, there's a big discrepancy whether it's direct deaths or indirect deaths. Um, you know, if, if you look at the, 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 the root cause of any problem is one, you know, around here, one death. These guys know one death is a death too many. We work every day to make sure that we try to prevent that. But if you want to get into Puerto Rico from the standpoint of what needs to happen next, well, you've got to fix aging infrastructure that wasn't ready to support, uh, you know, the Commonwealth before the storm hit. And when, it, when they were blown out and the infrastructure is blown out, it exponentially causes problems the on the reason, back end. But the reason it's so important, obviously, is if you figure out how people died last time, you can keep it from happening again. You say the numbers are all over the place, but... The numbers are more than zero, which is what the president said. They, they, he said the deaths didn't happen. I guess my question is this. The GW report, as you mentioned, again, the bulk was from interruption of medical care, which you're trying to take care of in Florence. They interviewed people from FEMA to come up with that number. So who's right, the president who says those deaths didn't happen or the FEMA officials who helped GW put together that report? Yeah, I don't know who they interviewed within my agency. They may have looked at uh, funeral benefits uh, to help, you know, calculate whatever number. And, and that's a number, you know, that, that's the only number that we would really be able to contribute to any study going forward. Um, but, but let me but ask as you far this. As, yeah. Puerto Rico might get hit again during hurricane season. People who worry about dying from interruption of medical care, which is the bulk of those deaths up that, that get to the 3,000 number. Is FEMA concerned about people who might die from that result in, in Puerto Rico? What we do is we coordinate the firepower of the federal government down. So, for example, FEMA's, you know, FEMA doesn't rebuild power grids. We, we basically pay for it and help to coordinate the resources they need. And that's the same case that would be within the health and medical industry. And, you know, my authority to support um, rebuilding the power, if you get the power back up, that solves 95% of the problems. I mean, you know, bottom line is we push forward on that authority as much as we can, and Puerto Rico is a very vulnerable place right now, but we're focused right. on putting billions of dollars of work to, to prevent this and build it more resilient so that it doesn't happen again. Let me ask you a, a final question. The Wall Street Journal had some reporting which, uh, uh, about you and your status. It suggested that because of your use of, of travel that there was an inspector general's report and that uh, Department of Homeland Security Secretary Nielsen went to you and, and discussed whether you should, you should continue in your job. What's yeah. your response about that? Yeah, that, so that narrative is, uh, the, yes, there's an ongoing investigation. We've been working with the OIG, uh, you know, very clearly, and I can come back and put context around that. But in regards to Secretary Nielsen and I, I've never been asked to resign. Secretary Nielsen and I talk every day. We have a very professional, functional uh, relationship. You know, we are both focused on Floyd right now. And, uh, you know, let's put some context on what the vehicles are that they're talking about. So this job is incredibly complex. Um, on my shoulders is Presidential Preparedness Directive 40, which means, you know, I have to make sure, FEMA has to make sure that the executive branch of government works on its worst day at any given time, regardless of what we see. And a lot of that is continuity of government. Those vehicles are to supply me with Secure comms. The program was developed in 2008, way before I even got here. It ran for me the same way that it ran for anybody before me. And uh, we comply every day. We'll make meaningful changes. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I uh, have never made, I would never intentionally violate any rules, you know, that I was there aware of. Oh. So, All right, Administrator Long, thanks so much for being with us and good luck with that long to do list. Thank you. For more about the impact of Florence in North Carolina, we turn to Republican Senator Tom Tillis. He's at the Red Cross 
shelter in Charlotte. Good morning, Senator. Good morning. Senator, how's your state holding up in the wake of this storm? Well, we're doing as well as we can. This is a weather event that I believe will exceed the damage that Matthew did just two years ago. So while we were still recovering from that event, we've got the same areas engulfed and rivers that are going to overflow their banks over the next few days. And I think some of the worst part of the storm will actually hasn't even occurred yet. It will as we see the rivers flow back to the coast. When you say it hasn't occurred yet, what, what do you expect? Well, with the, with the rain levels and some of the cresting estimates for the, uh, uh, the Cape Fear River, uh, a number of the other rivers and tributaries that head ultimately to our sounds or out to the ocean, we're, we're talking about uh, crest uh, amounts that exceed what we saw with Hurricane Matthew. And we're just now, I'm in Charlotte, we're just now beginning to see the rain bands more consistently dump water in this region and supposed to move up through the mountains. So the river basins are going to take a matter of days before we'll see the full effects of the storm. And we're already seeing a number of roads cut off, interstates likely to be closed over the next 24 to 48 hours. That creates a number of challenges for the local communities and for disaster relief. Are you getting the federal help you need? We are. I think that the uh, FEMA assets were positioned as well as they could be before we knew where the storm was going to make landfall. The Red Cross is doing an extraordinary job. We have four evacuation centers uh, here in the Charlotte area that have people from as far as Wilmington, Jacksonville, and Columbia, South Carolina here. It's at capacity. We have three others that uh, continue to have capacity. We'd expect to see some of those fill up as the storm progresses through this part of the region. During Hurricane Harvey, there were troubles with emergency services, people having difficulty getting through. Is that okay in this case? At this point, uh, in, in our section of the state, yes. There, there are certainly areas in the eastern part of the state where Florence made landfall, where flooding, down power lines, down trees are creating challenges. But the reports that we're getting is we're working through them. Duke Power's on the, uh, on the scene. They're trying to do everything they can to restore electricity to hundreds of thousands. And, and I don't believe we've seen the end of that. We've seen several thousand homes in, uh, in my own county here in Mecklenburg County in Charlotte uh, that are out of power. That's going to continue. It'll likely be weeks before it's all fully restored. Right, Senator, when you get back to Washington, you got to vote on Tuesday in the Judiciary Committee, which you sit on. There's been some information about uh, sexual misconduct allegations against uh, Brett Kavanaugh, uh, the president's nominee. Have you looked at the letter that is now a part of his file? It's an, it's, have you looked at that? I haven't seen the letter. As a matter of fact, I believe that the member that first received the letter was as late as July. And, and quite honestly, I'm shocked that the matter didn't come up in the nearly 32 hours of testimony that Judge Kavanaugh was before us in the open session or the nearly hour, hour and a half session that we had um, in a closed session. That, that information never came up. So when we get back to Washington this week, we'll take a look at it. But it really raises uh, a question in my mind about if, if, if this was material to the confirmation process, why on earth over the past four to six weeks hasn't it been discussed among the committee members? That's right. And we should make quite clear, this is uh, something he's denied categorically. This is something that, that allegedly happened uh, much more than 30 years ago. But now that it is in the mix, uh, is, your, is your feeling that this is a ploy of some kind or that this is uh, while it is so long ago, sufficient, uh, sufficiently important to look at, look seriously, and, and put into your calculation and others as they make their vote? Well, I've, I've spent most of my time focused on uh, Hurricane Florence, but the, the questions that we will ask and, and uh, seek answers to next week are 
why sit on it for weeks. Um, we understand that the person who wrote the letter is not willing to come forward. So we have a, a, a confidential witness not willing to sit down, at least in a closed setting. That's problematic to me. And as you said, Judge Kavanaugh has categorically deni denied the allegations, and uh, I put some weight on that. Very quickly, Senator, do you think he'll be confirmed by the Senate? Oh, I do. All I right. think that we'll move forward uh, to report him out of committee and confirm him before October. Senator Tillis, thanks so much for being with us. And we'll be back in one minute with a look at the situation in South Carolina. Senator Lindsey Graham will join us, so don't go away. Memories make us laugh and cry. And sometimes cringe when we look back at our fashion choices. But in between flashbacks of bowl cuts and dad jeans, our memories are fading. And so is the old media that holds them. Hi, I'm Adam Baselogger. And I'm Nick Mako, and we're the founders of Legacy Box. Legacy Box is the easiest and safest way to preserve your family memories. Here's how it works. Fill Legacy Box with your outdated media. We professionally digitize and send them back on DVDs, thumb drive, or the cloud. Look, those forgotten home movies, VHS tapes, film reels, and photos are degrading right before your eyes. Experience peace of mind and enjoy reliving the glory days. Join more than half a million families who have already trusted Legacy Box. Save your memories today. Visit LegacyBox.com save. And for a limited time, get 40% off your order. That's LegacyBox.com slash save for 40% off. Legacybox.com slash save. South Carolina is also seeing significant rain and flooding. We turn now to Senator, senior Republican senator from the state, Lindsey Graham, who is in Clemson this morning. Senator, how's the state doing? Uh, we're just waiting on it to get to where I live, but it's, it's hit the same areas that Matthew hit two years ago, and the water from North Carolina eventually makes its way to South Carolina. North Carolina took the brunt of it. But the people who were flooded out two years ago are going to get flooded out again. And I don't know how these communities make it, quite frankly. I, like Williamsburg County, is just going to be years to recover. Quickly, Senator, are people, did they heed the warnings? Most did, some didn't. If you live near water, you should have left a long time ago. The rivers are the most dangerous thing now. Most people did. Uh, so I can't... The governor did a good job. The Trump administration's called me about four or five times. What do you need that you don't have? So I'm pleased with the federal and state response, but it's really up to individuals to sometimes, uh, you know, use good judgment. And unfortunately, some people have not used good judgment. Let me ask you a couple other pieces of uh, news that are in the news, Senator. In the Mueller probe, you've been focused on collusion, this question of a conspiracy that, that has been right. alleged during the campaign. Right. So there's now been a plea deal from <clears throat> Paul Manafort, the chairman of the campaign. How do you read that? I don't know yet. I know that from the judiciary point of view, we found no evidence of collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians. I think Richard Burr said from the intel point of view that he's seen no evidence of collusion. But we're waiting on Mueller. Uh, let's let Mueller do, do his job. I don't know what Manafort has to offer. I don't know if it's anything meaningful. But I'm intent on making sure that Mueller completes his investigation without political interference. And I can answer questions about the report once it's issued. I'm very disappointed. No Democrats seem to be worried about the corruption and, uh, at the Department of Justice and the FBI regarding the Clinton email investigation, the early stages of the Russian investigation. I'm worried about that. But when it comes to Mueller, let's let him do his job. The, um, you've trained prosecutors. You were a prosecutor. Give me your sense of how a prosecutor is doing if he's, if he's indicted more than 32 people, three companies, gotten six plea deals, and initiated actions that have 
led to two more plea deals and gotten a, a victory in court. How's that prosecutor doing? Well, you got to look at the substance of what people pled to. Some people pled to lying to the FBI, like Papadopoulos, and got two weeks in jail. So I don't see that's a big event. Uh, Manafort could have a lot of stuff, or he could just have stuff around, uh, you know, financial transactions. I don't know yet. You don't look at the numbers. Uh, Flynn would know a lot. I don't know what kind of deal Flynn's going to get. Uh, at the end of the day, I haven't heard anything coming out of the Mueller world showing collusion between Trump and the Russians, but that's why you let a guy like Mueller do his job. I trust him mm -hmm. to be honest and fair, and time will tell. It's, I guess, what I was hoping. Your, your experience as a prosecutor and, and also an impeachment manager who, who had to deal with a yeah. case that started at about yeah. a land deal <laughs> right, and was a right. real different thing when it got right. to you. So this started with collusion, may yeah. un, end up somewhere else. But, you know, the president has yeah, called it and can, continues point. to call it a, um, a witch hunt. So given that record, though... Uh, is it a witch hunt or is it proceeding as you would expect a prosecutor to go forward? I think it's proceeding in a way that these things start with a uh, land deal and uh, cattle futures and wind up with a blue dress. This started with an accusation of collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. Now we've got, you know, you know, all kind of things in New York and Mr. Manafort's lobbying business apart from before he met uh, Trump. So I don't know where it's going to go. And the only thing I can tell you, not one Republican in the Senate has done anything to stop this investigation. The leadership of the House and the Senate, or Republicans, have pledged uh, their efforts to make sure that Mr. Mueller finishes job. I wish you had some Democrats concerned about Strzok uh, and Page and Bruce Orr. That's going to be done later. But let me. Nothing's going to happen to Mueller's investigation politically. He's going to be allowed to finish it. Let's move to quickly to North Korea. When you and I last talked, it was some time ago, you had suggested that, that the uh, military think about moving dependents out of South Korea. Yeah. That, you mentioned that on the show. Bob Woodward meant, talks about that in the book and that President Trump was considering that option and the two of you discussed it. Is that covered accurately in the book and what happened? Yeah, uh, there was a point in time where it looks like nothing was going to happen. There was no dialogue going. And the, the way you lead up to this is that once you start moving dependents out of South Korea, that's a signal to everybody that we're running out of time. Now, we, ha we have engagements that I think are going to be fruitful. I hope they're going to be fruitful. We're not out of the woods yet when it comes to North Korea. But the whole discussion was around what should I do to handle this threat to our homeland. And here's what the president was willing to do. If he has to, he'll use military force to stop a missile coming to America with a nuclear weapon on it uh, originating in North Korea. We were really close to having to make that hard decision. Now we have some time. Are they playing us? I don't know. If they're playing Trump, we're going to be in a world of hurt because he's going to have no options left. This is the last best chance for peace right here. The way it was characterized in the book, and I want to get see if this is right with you, is that the president was one tweet away from suggesting moving dependents out and that that was read at the Pentagon, that if he sent that tweet out, it would have looked like an act of war. Is that the way it went down? He was very frustrated with uh, North Korea saying one thing and doing another. I had suggested to him, along with others, that once you start moving dependents out, then you're preparing yourself for a military conflict that's the last decision you make, and uh, we got very close to that, but we pulled back, and now we got a chance, I think, to get 
a resolution of this peacefully to convince North Korea you're better off without your nukes than you are with them in terms of security and survivability. But it got close, and the president's serious. The whole point here is President Trump has no place okay. to kick the can. For Senator, the last 30 years, everybody's got it wrong, and he's Senator, run out of options. All right, and we've run out of time. Senator, thanks for being with us. We'll be back in a moment. <laughs> Sorry. Are you having trouble sleeping? NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices, it can affect your sleep. They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to the Sleep Number store because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on a Sleep Number bed. Sleep Number beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. The Sleep Number 360 smart bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept and gain insights for your best sleep. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 smart bed. Find your competitive edge with proven quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Sleep Number. It was a difficult week for a lot of Americans, and we had some tough news here at CBS, too. But we would like to end on a joyous note. Margaret Brennan and her husband, Yado Yakub, welcomed 7-pound, 8-ounce Eamon Brennan Yakub to their family. And we at CBS, and especially Face the Nation, could not be happier for the new parents. Margaret is going to take some time off to get used to her new role, but she'll be back in November. Oh, and Eamon, from the son of one journalist to another... You're a lucky guy. And we'll be right back with a lot more Face the Nation, including our panel and Chief White House Correspondent Major Garrett is here with his new book about the Trump White House. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Dan Primack, business editor at Axios. Right now, you can download, subscribe, and hear Pro Rata, the first podcast from Axios. We talk about the collision of politics, business, and technology, things like election hacking or the battle over 3D-printed guns or the Washington, D.C. blowback against big tech platforms like Facebook and Google. Listen and subscribe to Axios Pro Rata now. It's free on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or wherever you get your shows to get smarter, faster. Back to Face the Nation. It's time for some political analysis. Susan Page is the Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today. Jeffrey Goldberg is Editor-in-Chief of The Atlantic. Ramesh Panuru is a Senior Editor at the National Review and a columnist for Bloomberg View. And Jamel Bowie is Slate's Chief Political Correspondent and a Political Analyst here at CBS News. It's great to be back with all of you. Susan, let's start with the plea deal from Paul Manafort, the president's former campaign manager, excuse me, campaign chairman, not campaign manager. What does it mean? Well, it means that Robert Mueller does not tweet. It means Robert Mueller mm. indicts and he convicts. 
Uh, and that is a powerful statement indeed to have the president's personal lawyer, the president's former national security advisor, and now his campaign chairman. Uh, it is really quite a remarkable thing. And I think it does signal that we are approaching some kind of uh, decision point when it comes to the most fundamental question of all about collusion in the president's role. Jamel, what could Paul Manafort give? And it, it looks like from the way this was done, he's already handed over something right. as a part of the deal that he structured. I mean, he could help shine light on things like the change in the Republican uh, Party platform uh, in summer 2016 around Ukraine. He can help shed light on um, particular claims within the Steele uh, dossier and, and things that have not yet been confirmed or, or just add more um, insight into things that have been confirmed. So it, it's, it's, he provides, a, I think, a potentially substantial amount of evidence or a substantial amount of confirmation um, for the ongoing investigation. And I have to imagine that the president um, is very concerned about this, given his tweeting about uh, the Mueller investigation. My, my guess is that there are things we don't know we don't know. In other words, the deal with Manafort is so good for Manafort. So many charges were dropped by Mueller that in their, in their negotiation, uh, I think uh, Manafort, obviously it's full kimono now, as they say, and, and Manafort shared in some... Opening the kimono. Meaning, oh, yeah. They, yeah. He's, he's now going to unload everything that he knows, obviously. Um, and, and as you point out, he already has, in a sense, because they wouldn't make this deal without knowing what they're going to get. Um, and so there, are, there might be subjects that will surprise us. Um, Manafort is the closest person in. Uh, in, uh, in Mueller's universe right now, the closest person into having actually watched this campaign for a pretty long period of time, despite what Donald Trump says about Manafort's marginal role. It reduces the plausibility of the president's constant attacks on the Mueller investigation as a witch hunt. It is finding real witches. Uh, it <laughs> creates the possibility that um, we're going to get more information, or Mueller's going to get more information, about Russian interference in our election. Whether or not connected to Trump himself, he may know things about the other end of this problem. And it, you know, it's worth stopping for a second because we often talk about what does this mean next for the investigation, but the mere fact that the former campaign chairman has pled guilty to multiple counts of corruption is in itself a massive story, and if we didn't have this other controversy constantly swirling around this president, we would all stop and think, wow, that's a really big deal. If that had happened to Obama, if that had happened to George W. Bush, we'd be talking about that pretty substantially for a long time. Obama wore a tan suit once, and it was a controversy yeah. by contrast. Ramesh, let, me, let me follow up on that, because you heard Lindsey Graham. I was trying to, you know, he, he was a prosecutor, and he's also been an impeachment manager of something that started with a land deal. So he knows how prosecutions can move. He, he brought up a couple of times investigations into the FBI. This certainly we've heard from the president as well, saying with each new movement from Mueller, yes, but we should be looking at these other things. Assess that as a both a policy argument, but also politically, does that work? Well, look, almost anything that comes out of the administration works with a hard core of supporters of the administration, which is a minority of the public, but a majority of Republican voters. It keeps his base. It doesn't help him win the argument with the public at large. And more people, according to most of the polling that I've seen, trust Mueller, believe in the process, then believe in the attacks on it. Susan, what's your sense? we got an election coming up. I mean, we, as you quite rightly pointed out, the Mueller investigation happens almost as if it were in another time before electricity in terms of its patient, quiet, and not. But does, what happens if this comes out in a month, with yeah. the election coming up? Or do you, what's, how do you 
sort through all that. You know, one of the amazing things about the, when you look at the midterm elections is that the economy is doing great. People are the most optimistic about the economy they've been in a decade since the crisis in 2008. And the president's approval rating is sinking below 40 percent. Why is that? It's because President Trump is not getting the credit he wants for the economy, not because they think somebody else created a good economy, but because they're overwhelmed by the news we get every day about chaos in the White House and about the investigation by Robert Mueller. Uh, it is it has swept away the possibility that Republicans could do OK in their first midterm. They're going to have a very tough midterm in 51 days. All right. We're, this is this is our segue to talk about politics. Uh, <laughs> stipulating <laughs> stipulating that um, presidents two years in often lose seats, yes. the majority part of the, the ruling party party loses seats. Um, the Republicans should not be losing seats in either house right now. The economy is swimming along. We have no major international crises except self-imposed or self-created. Um, and, and the fact that he's under 40 percent uh, and the fact that Republicans are already discussing who to blame come November uh, means that something is off the rails here. And this is this is a process that's being blown by a Republican president and Republican Party, and it, that, that shouldn't be blown. What's, what's interesting is it's not clear if the president himself recognizes the amount of danger his administration is in should Democrats have not just a good uh, November, but a, a very successful one is what the polling is suggesting. If Democrats take the House, if they narrow the margin or even take the Senate, which is not out of the realm of possibility, all of a sudden a whole world of investigative options are open. And I don't think, from my observation, that the president is really quite aware of what that will mean for his administration, what that will mean for his ability to function insofar that he's even functioning now. Ramesh, could, could follow up on that, but also could Republicans say, economy's doing well, let's not mess this up in the middle of it, let's not lock up the government with the investigations of the kind Jamel is talking about, so don't, don't elect Democrats. I mean, is there a way to use what Jamel is talking about as an electoral? I think the problem with the economy for the ruling party is that in a midterm election, you've got to motivate people to come out to vote. Midterms usually go badly for the party in power because the opposition is more revved up. And a message that things are okay is not the message that moves people. A message of grievance is what moves people. 2014, you had a good economy. You had no international crisis. The party in power, then the Democrats, got slaughtered in both the House and the Senate. That's the problem. They need, a, I think, fundamentally for midterms, you need a more grievance-based message than a message of be grateful for the tax cut, be grateful for the economy. And too many Republicans don't get that. I think that's right. I think also, you know, you look at the polling and voters say they want accountability. They want Congress to act as a check on the worst impulses of the White House. And I think there's a way in which the Republican Congress, by not being more aggressive as a check, has created a situation where voters may be very satisfied, but they're saying to themselves, listen, we actually want some accountability here. We want someone to take, take the reins here. And it looks like the only option are Democrats. Susan, um, the Senate, there's been a lot of talk about how the Senate may now, controlled by Republicans of the Senate, may be in play. Is that right? Because we started this whole narrative with, oh, my gosh, there are a lot of Democrats running in states that Donald Trump won handily. What's your assessment? I think it's still a pretty much a long shot. I think every single thing has to go Democrats' direction for them to take control of the Senate. But I don't think they need control of the Senate to overwhelm and undo and, and upset uh, the, the order that President Trump has gotten accustomed to. If, if Democrats just win the House 
and it looks like that is a likely possibility, they'll not just consider impeachment. He's going to get investigated in his administration yeah, a lot of for a dozen know. other things that the Republicans have refused to take control of. It's going to be a different world. If they also took the Senate, think about confirmation battles that would follow for anybody judicial in his cabinet that the president wants to nominate. I want to get to the Kavanaugh confirmation battle. We'll do that after the commercial. But quickly, Jeffrey, as we're talking about how things may change, there's been some reporting about the Secretary of Defense and his re relationship with the president. Yeah. Um, and, and, and what do you what do you think about that? The idea is that the relationship, which had been pretty good, um, relatively speaking to right. his relationship with other people who've either been fired or attacked on Twitter, what, what do you get, what's the sense you have about the relationship between the Secretary of Defense, James Mattis, and the president? The relationship relationship is somewhat difficult because uh, Jim Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, is an internationalist. He's a supporter of American alliances. He, 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 his belief system is completely different than Donald Trump's belief system, but he's there to serve the American people and to be the grown-up in the room. He also does not pay obeisance to Trump in the same way that many cabinet members uh, do. He doesn't laugh at, at the jokes, as Helene Cooper pointed out in the New York Times yesterday. He doesn't do all of the sort of things that Trump seems to like doing. Um, He's very popular in the military. Obviously, he's a revered figure in the military, and that might keep the Trump administration from moving against him too quickly. He might get fed up with the discord. Uh, we're constantly being surprised by White House announcements of policies that he disagrees with uh, and leave. And he could be the leading edge of an exodus of senior administration officials post-election. Okay, we're going to hold it there. we got much more. So stick with us. More from the panel. We'll be right back. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you? That's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love or visit www.pacificlife.com. And we're back with our panel. Susan, pick up on this idea of a lot going on, possibly with the exodus Jeffrey talked about at the same time for this administration. Right. General Mattis may leave uh, uh, soon after the midterms. Uh, do we think Jeff Sessions survives long as attorney general? There could be others who leave. And I'm struck by the comparison with President Clinton when he faced impeachment, a very serious uh, matter in his, in his second term. And his cabinet stayed put. That, gave, that was an, a source of enormous strength for him because it kept the government running in a, in a coherent way. And if President Trump faces a, several of his key cabinet members leaving, he could have trouble delivering on just regular government services all around him. Yeah. Ramesh, I want to ask you about something else that happened this week. The president, while Florence is bearing down on the East Coast, tweeted about the uh, Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, which, which uh, was about a year ago from now, and said that the 3,000 deaths that have been, and there have been a lot of numbers, but they've been 3,000 is about the mid-range of, of the numbers, said that they didn't happen. What did you make of that tweet and then the fallout from it? So the president treated it as suspicious that the estimates of the number of deaths directly and indirectly from the hurricane have been rising. 
that's not suspicious. It's not even surprising. Uh, and it's certainly not exculpatory of the administration's record or the federal and local response to the hurricane. You'd expect over time, especially when there are significant power outages lasting for several months, for that death toll to rise. And either the president doesn't understand this point or thinks that a lot of his supporters won't understand this point. But either way, it is not a great sign about the ability of the administration to respond to natural disasters. And we also have, and I was looking at the Hurricane Katrina numbers were kind of solidified three years after it happened. And there's still debate about about that. Jamel, obviously, there's the the sort of the fundamental point here is that we're talking about human lives. Right. Uh, the, the, we've, these are not just numbers. They are very important for assessing what happened and how to prepare to face it again. But uh, the, the, one of the major criticisms against the president, even from his own side, is that he was treating the death of people as a kind of numbers game in, in terms of how his administration had done. It's, I think it's very easy to go numb when reading the president's tweets. There's so many of them. He said so many outrageous things over the past couple of years that it's, it's easy to say, uh, here's just another one. But I think... I think this is genuinely remarkable in that indifference to the fact that, that people died, potentially thousands of people died, um, some of Americans. them. Americans. Americans. Americans died, um, potentially preventable deaths. And for the president of the United States, who, who swore an oath um, to the Constitution, to the American people, to say that they didn't happen and to suggest that the numbers themselves are some sort of opposition plot to discredit him, I, I think it's a, I think it's a serious offense. I think even if it's just a tweet, it represents a profound violation of what the president is supposed to do and what he's supposed to be here for. Um, I was, as you do, perusing the Federalist Papers a couple days ago, and <laughs> more in, people are doing that more and more. In Federalist sixty-five, Hamilton lays out sort of why. Um, what impeachment is and why they're giving it to the Senate as sort of a duty. And the thing he notes is that this is impeachment's a political process, and it's not just for for crime crimes. It's for things that go against the the oath of the office, that go against the integrity of the office. And I'm not going to suggest that Trump ought to be impeached for the tweet, but I think we should think broadly about the ways in which he has violated the integrity of the office. And I think that tweet, that sentiment, is a profound violation of the office of the president. Uh, as they say in Federalist 10, sorry, <laughs> I'm going to leave that. There's an interesting new phenomenon, and, and the word numb is, the, I think, the crucial, the crucial word here. Um, we do go numb to this. This is hurricane denialism. This is a new phenomenon in, in conspiracy mongering from an administration that we're you know, somewhat used to now, sort of the, the floating of, of strange conspiracy theories. It, 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 it is, I think it's remarkably different in kind from other, other tweets. But I would say, just to add to what Ramesh said, that there's a good chance or a reasonable chance that the president doesn't understand how these death tolls are calculated. He thinks that if you don't die in the storm three or four days of a hurricane, that means that anything that happens after is, is immaterial, and, and we know that that's not true. So there might be just a, a cognitive issue here or an, an, an issue of analysis that he doesn't quite understand. And we heard from Brock Long that they're preparing to prevent the deaths in Florence that right. are the key to the number getting to 3,000 right. in Maria. Susan, let's talk about uh, Brett Kavanaugh, president's nominee of the Supreme Court. Where What do we make of these allegations which are wisps from high school or hard to figure out, what, what do you make of that? You know, I, we do, we do, we, there's so much we don't know yeah. about these accusations, and we don't know where they're going to lead, and at the moment, uh, we don't know that they'll necessarily lead anywhere. But what struck me was how different the climate is today from when Clarence Thomas was being considered. Then you had a woman of real standing testifying under oath before a committee that, by the way, was all male, 
and her complaints about sexual harassment were not taken seriously, were not believed. And now we have a situation where the climate is different. If this woman came forward uh, and had a credible story, uh, raising questions about sexual harassment, even in high school, it would be taken seriously today. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen, and we don't know that she's going to come forward, and we don't know precisely what happened, but I do think that this is a different time. Ramesh, what do you think will, will happen? He, it seems like the, the nomination is still on track to be con confirmed. Well, I think Susan raises the key question, which is whether the person behind the allegation comes forward and attaches her name to it. Um, if that Although then, even then, it's a he said, she said. Right? That, that's, that's absolutely right. But it does change it. If that doesn't happen, then I think this just goes forward. We have a Judiciary Committee vote on Thursday, which is favorable to Judge Kavanaugh, and then you move forward. And there's no reason, I think, that you wouldn't expect the Senate Republicans to have this done by the end of the month. Jamel, in our thir last 30 seconds or less, um, there are a lot of red state Democrats in the Senate who are up in states that where Donald Trump won. Did, what do they do about this vote? You know, I, um, I, I tend to think that elections are, are very national and that voters don't pay attention to that much of the minutia. I think that they could vote against Kavanaugh and it's not going to make much of a difference for, for, their, for their prospects. Um, voting for Kavanaugh isn't going to help them escape any attacks from the president. It's going to have to help them escape any attacks from their Republican opponents. So it, it seems to me that the, the thing to do is just to vote with the party. And, and given that Kavanaugh does seem to be an unusually weak nominee, he's unusually unpopular for a Supreme Court nomination, um, there's a possibility that a unified Democratic front could could throw a wrench into the process in a way that it wouldn't have one or two peeled off. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. Thanks to all of you, and we'll be back in a moment. I used to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same. Well, not anymore, because I found Noom. Noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits. So it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good. Noom combines the power of technology with real human support, offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use, which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. So what do you have to lose? Visit Noom.com slash podcast, N-O-O-M dot com slash podcast, and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind, and change for good with Noom. Major Garrett, our chief White House correspondent here at CBS News, is the author of a new book, Mr. Trump's Wild Ride. He joins me now. Welcome, Major. What I think you're trying to do in this book is amazing. You're trying to cover an administration with yes. all the plates spinning in the air, and you right. detail here what that is like just day to day. But you're also trying to say, wait a minute, there are transformations here that are enormous and different. Let's step back. Right. The question is, does the world need another Donald Trump book? That's a legitimate question. Maybe yes, maybe no. What did I try to do? To say, look, the emotional reaction, the national, national debate that constantly goes about Donald Trump, what he is, what he isn't, how he's affecting our politics, politics rages hour to hour, day to day. And yet things happen or don't happen. This book is about what happened, not about what didn't, not about the intrigues inside the White House that derailed things or carried out a vendetta or got someone to create a scenario that works around something the president said, but what actually happened, what's going to be with this country, whether you love Donald Trump or hate Donald Trump, five or ten years from now. 
That's a big task. It was hard to do, but I believe this book does it better than any book that's out there right now. Now, uh, just on that kind of, what do we call it, the, the excitement you deal with day to day in the White House, before we get to the transformational parts of the presidency, one thing, point you make, which I want to highlight a little bit, is that the, 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 the chaos inside the White House, if that's the way we want to talk about it, it's not just relative to previous White Houses, all White House, but it's also relative to the goals the president would like to achieve himself. In other words, some of this has gotten in the way of what he wants to do himself. Sure. Sometimes he changes his mind and derails something, and that frustrates people, and that creates a sense of instability. Like, what does he really want? Am I doing the president's bidding? Because I thought I was, and they changed his mind. How do I react to that? That's one part of it. The other part of it is Republicans won't come into this administration. They're understaffed. They don't have people with existing bureaucratic and political knowledge who could assist this administration. Sometimes they don't want them because they were a never-Trumper or a minor league never-Trumper. That's a problem. When you're not fully staffed, and the op-ed in the New York Times highlighted this tension, yeah. who do we believe, who do we trust, who can we believe, whatever that continuum or answer is, they don't have nearly as many people as they need. That's a problem. The president's willingness to change his mind, sometimes on a dime, also is a problem, and one of the casualties of that sometimes is what the president himself would like to accomplish. Now let's go back to the core argument of the book, which is transformational things are happening. Give people a sense of what those big transformational things are and what hangs in the balance. Well, look at the Supreme Court and the federal bench. The president talks about that all the time, not without legitimacy. Brett Kavanaugh is, so far as we know, likely to be confirmed. That's two Supreme Court justices in two years. A dozen federal appellate court judges in his first 12 months, more than any president in the history of the country. That didn't happen by accident. I point out in the book that when Donald Trump first thought about the Supreme Court, he said, I want a list. No one had ever put a list together before. That's an act of political originalism. It's probably going to stay with the Republican Party for a long time. They laid the question of the future of the Supreme Court before the country. And a lot of Republicans adhered to Donald Trump for that reason principally even amid all their other reservations. That's worth noting. Yeah. And, and those Republicans said, ignore the noise, this is what matters, 40 years on the benches. And it very well might. Uh, the Donald Trump court may be something we're talking about, or the Donald Trump federal judiciary is something we may be talking about 30 years from now. And one of the things you point out about these transformations, tax cuts would be another, another one. Another one. We'll be living with that for two decades for sure. That's right. And, and the, all the underlying politics. And if you ignore the excitement of the, it looks kind of like a traditional standard Republican stuff. That In certain respects, not on trade and not on immigration, but certainly on right deregulation. And there was a conversation during the panel about what if Democrats take over. There's a, I would say, something worth pointing out and listening to and reading in the deregulation chapter because... Early in the administration, the White House, the Office of Legal Counsel, sent a letter to Congress saying, you don't have to respond if you work in this administration to anyone who's not in the majority. Charles Grassley, Republican from Iowa, Senate Judiciary Committee chairman, said, that's outrageous. You can't say that. White House said it anyway. Imagine now how that document might be used against this administration should Democrats take control and be in the majority, because they have been now empowered right. by this administration to be the ones you answer first and answer most readily. And that document originally, though, was meant to what? Not answer from... It disempower the minority Democratic Party. Yeah. Okay? That's in the book. That's there. This is coming. If Democrats take... And I'm not predicting it, but if they do, this administration, quite apart what the inclinations of the Democratic majority might or might not be, has, by its own words, on its own piece of paper, empowered them if they're in the majority. we got about 20 seconds. Can a presidency go back after Donald Trump, even if a Republican, or is this just all... 
very Trump idiosyncratic. What I say at the end of the book is what was unknowable in 2016 is knowable now. The country will decide whether we want to go back or not, but it won't decide that in a vacuum. All right, Major Garrett, it is a fascinating read. Thanks a lot for being with us. Thank you. That's it for us today. Thanks for watching. For Face the Nation, I'm John Dickerson, but I'll see you tomorrow on CBS This Morning. Today's guests were FEMA Administrator Brock Long, South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, North Carolina Republican Senator Tom Tillis. And the executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus, starting May 1st. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Devaya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because... Even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.